Hey, folks, just a quick heads up. In this episode, there's an R-rated joke. Gasp. So probably not great for kids. But if you're not a kid, stay tuned. It's a really good joke. Every stand-up comedian has a story about bombing on stage. Here's Chris Grace. I think still to this day, the worst I ever bombed was my first paid gig. It was at a gay bar next to the Brooklyn Pride March. And it was a mixed bill of stand-up comics, folk singer-songwriters, and spoken word poets. Already a bad mix. (laughs) I don't think an audience is necessarily ready to shift tones that often in a show from one person to the next. So Chris went on after the folk singer, and then he told a joke that had worked for him in the past, but this time when he told it, silence. It was so bad, somebody in the crowd actually asked him a clarifying question about the joke. It's like a Q&A. Yeah, I had no response. Yeah, every joke I told had like a little talk back afterward. <laughs> so it was about, I'd say about 10 minutes of just pure silence. And here's the impact that it had on me. I quit stand-up for about four years after that. <laughs> oh, wow. Like, I didn't, I just didn't do stand-up for a long time after that. I'm Dan Heath, and this is What It's Like to Be. In every episode, we walk in the shoes of someone from a different profession, a hairstylist, a forensic accountant, a professional Santa Claus. We want to know what they do all day at work. Today, we ask Chris Grace what it's like to be a stand-up comedian. He's been doing stand-up for more than 10 years, and he played Jerry in the NBC sitcom Superstore. We'll find out how he comes up with new jokes, what he does when things aren't going well on stage, and why new stand-up comedians lose more money than they make. Stay with us. So how do you get a comedy booking? Like, do they arrive to you or do you have to chase them and, and, and try to get a spot or how does it work? You would be surprised at the, even at, I'd say mid to upper tier levels, how much of it has to be chased by the comic. Mm. The amount of small business acumen that a comic has to have these days in terms of just being a solo entrepreneur on top of, you know, creating material and learning how to perform it and becoming a good performer. There's this whole other side of it that literally comes down to, do you have a spreadsheet with a list of emails and the contact names at these clubs all over the country? So you, I mean, you literally just have to reach out to such and such booking agent at the club in Kansas City and and ask, can I get on the bill sometime soon? Yeah, some of it is you send them an email and it's like, here's a clip, here's some other clubs I've worked recently, here's a gig I did, or maybe I had a TV appearance or something like that. But almost like any other business, it comes a lot down to relationships in terms of, hey, I was at this festival and I met you and we hung out, or I've been recommended by this other comic who you know and trust. And most of these gigs are paid at some scale, right? Yeah, I'm lucky enough now that, yes, these are all paid, which is like, sounds ridiculous, but like, there is a long period of any comedian's career where a significant number of the things you do are not paid. And in fact, Mm -hmm. there's even levels that I was at even up to very recently where you're still kind of paying 
to perform, you know, at the beginning levels, you do open mics. Open mics commonly these days have a drink minimum or an item minimum or even just have a like $5 fee. Mm -hmm. There's there's another level called the bringer show where uh, then people are happy to have you do bringer shows because what that means is, Dan, you can come do stand up at my show. I'll give you 10 minutes. I think you're a great comic. I've seen your stuff. I love your stuff. All you need to do is you need to bring 10 of your friends to come see the show. And if you don't bring the 10 friends at, at the box office, if they don't say I'm here to see Dan Heath, uh, you won't get to perform. So, um, Oh my gosh, really? That's a <laughs> yeah. thing? Yeah, so good luck with that. It's almost like a multi-level marketing scheme or something. Yes, it is. But even beyond that, you start applying to festivals. Festivals cost money to apply. I mean, there's a big chunk of time where you are putting out more money than you're bringing in. I'm just fascinated that there's like a profession of stand-up comedy, and then there are a number of adjacent professions that prey on aspiring stand-up comedians. Oh, yes. Not unlike most other, I guess, arts careers, you know? So I'm sure what everybody wants to know from you is how do you come up with your material? What, what's your process for that? I am trying to become a notebook person, mm. uh, which is uh, something I'm always intimidated by other comics who I go to shows and they have, I, I'm not kidding, just like full notebooks, uh, you know, like almost um, the movie seven serial killer type notebooks full of <laughs> musings. <laughs> And then they they open up those pages and they go in there and they just find gold. And uh, whereas I I'll accumulate in my phone like little notes of like if something happens to me, um, I'll think about oh maybe I'll talk about that. And then wait, so, but, but literally, how, are you using the notes app? Are you doing voice memos or what's your um, what's your mo? I use Obsidian just like any good old uh, tech obsessed dork does today. Um, which is just like a text note keeping app that is, uh, okay. you know, has the promise of, um, if I just know how to use this one program, I'll just be so free and creative. And then like the system itself becomes more, uh, trouble than it's worth <laughs> <laughs> that, that you have just described my life as well. Yeah. <laughs> so if you don't mind me asking, what were the last couple of things that you logged in your, uh, obsidian app? Oh, wait, let me bring it up. Let's see. While I do that, I'll talk a little bit more about where it goes from there. So I will put stuff into Obsidian, and then the next time I have some stage time, I'll kind of look into that file. And uh, there's literally like six different files in my Obsidian that say joke ideas. Um, <laughs> no organization whatsoever. Literally, I'm looking at a screen that says joke ideas, and then another one that says more jokes. Why, why the separate categories? Who knows? <laughs> and then if I have some stage time, I'll... I'll try to talk. I have two approaches. One is sometimes I will just get up and talk about it, which is a great luxury that I think you get more as you get more established, which is you have better access to stage time. So you can use some of your stage time to work out ideas. That's not really a thing that like beginners have very easily. So I love that process because there are things that I'll just sort of say off the cuff that will be things I keep. And I'm also uh, audio recording shows. So you're just kind of playing around with ideas live. Like you haven't like scripted out jokes and you're memorizing them. It's more like you have some riffs and you're just, are you just improvising? So that's what I sort of mean when I say I have two approaches. So one, is, and this is the more common one recently is that I do sort of just have, okay, this, I have this thought, let me like try to work it out on stage. And a great deal of it is improv. And then I have this other approach that I have used in the past 
that is not as uh, common lately that I actually feel like I want to get back to a little bit, which is a little more sitting down and writing stuff, um, at least taking a shot at trying to construct the language around the joke in whatever I think is best. Inevitably, it always changes. Mm. But I have sort of like swung between these two poles over the last four or five years. And actually, as of this recording, I feel like I want to swing a little bit more towards the writing a little more concretely before I get on stage. How come? Um, I feel like I spent the last year or two becoming a lot looser in my performance And I feel like I'm in a place that I really like where I want every night's show to be very much like happening that night. I don't want you to see me two nights in a row and feel like I did the exact same 45 minutes. Mm. But I have also recognized in the work of other comics that I've done shows with the value of having a chunk of just like machine gun, like well-constructed, tight jokes that have a great utility when, for example, if the audience isn't there to see me specifically, or basically to give me a little bit more, um, uh, this is the wrong word, but like power in the in the mm-hmm. situation, where it's like, oh, you don't need to worry. I've got jokes. Here's seven minutes of like very well-crafted jokes and punchlines. After that, I'm going to riff. And so that is a thing that I have. Some jokes I would put in that category, but I would like to have more just building up the library of like, okay, they're a little low energy or they're not really with me. Let me just uh, go into the bank and just like hit them with a whole bunch of punchlines. That's one thing I wanted to ask you about is, you know, if if you just sense that the audience is, is not with you or, you know, things are falling flat, like what are the tools that you reach for in those moments? Like, is it the sure thing joke or something else? Well, that's why I'd love to have more of the sure thing jokes, but My main tool belt is that I never pretend that it's not going the way it's going. So, and I think this is a pretty common stand-up tactic, which is just to call out what exactly what is happening in the room. I think the skill level here is how aligned you can be with the exact energy of you plus the audience. So if there is a certain tone happening or if there is a vibe, the closest you can get to accurately naming that vibe and building from there, it can help you unify the room sometimes. Like, Give me an example, like some recent gig where you you kind of pulled that lever. Yeah. So um, uh, this gig I did in New Orleans where I told like, uh, I'll just tell you the joke and do whatever. I grew up in Houston. Uh, I'm gay. A lot of the guys I like are what we call bears. And because I grew up in Houston, a lot of them happen to be like big white bears. You know, like guys who wear flannel or camo, guys who drive pickup trucks, uh, guys that uh, you're not sure where they were on January 6th. You know, that's my type. (laughs) And um, the thing is, like, it can be a little trepidatious when you hit on a guy like that, because the way they look, you're not sure how they're going to react. But I have to say, it is kind of titillating when you hit on someone not knowing if the night's going to end in a hookup or a hate crime. And um, (laughs) uh, if I'm lucky, it's both. Um, Either way, I'm going to end up getting choked. Uh, and so I told that in New Orleans and like, I would say about a third of the group really liked it. And then the third of the group, there was just a weird vibe. And I was just like, Oh, uh, too dark, uh, too dark for you guys. You don't like the image of me getting choked. (laughs) Like, um, 
That's weird. I have about 20 more minutes of jokes about just me getting choked out. Is that, should I skip that chunk? Um, <laughs> you know, and that's a very simple example of it, but like just feeling that energy from the back half of the room that they were like not with me on that joke and being willing to call it out in a way that still maintains my power over the dynamic. Yeah, that's what, that, that's what's interesting about that, right? Because it's sort of like, on one hand, you're showing empathy with them, but then you, you also risk, like, if you're acknowledging a failure, like, does that become a doom loop? To say more about how you kind of use that as a tool of power. I think it depends on how you do it. So I think it's totally fine to acknowledge when jokes don't work. Johnny Carson made a whole career off of this, but you can't ever emanate the thought that you care what they think. <laughs> mm -hmm. And um, obviously you do care. So it's like all a magic trick, basically. Like it's literally a confidence trick of you want to portray this person that is there to say things. And in terms of the power dynamic, they are there to hear from you. And so if they want to get on board with you, great. If not, we got more stuff we can say, and it doesn't phase you at all. Of course, uh, <laughs> afterwards, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened or whatever. But um, this is something I see in comics that I admire that I think are more skilled than me, where they will pick up on something not only faster than I would, but also more granular. I might say like, oh, y'all weren't with me on that joke or whatever. Someone more experienced might even be able to figure out the four people in that side of the room that weren't with it and in a more specific way label that moment. And it just gives them that much more currency to build the next moment off of. Because there is this whole thing where comedians, like we want to be these like philosopher kings, you know, where we're like, oh, we're really mm -hmm. speaking truth to power. But there, and I know it's cringy and corny sometimes, but I think most comedians are presenting themselves as truth tellers. So you get more currency, the more truth you can tell. And some of that is just the truth that's happening in the room. Hey there, Dan here. This episode is dropping just before Valentine's Day. So we just wanted to send some love your way. Thank you for listening. We love our listeners. We love the comments you send us. We love your episode suggestions. We love your recommendations for guests. So much love. And as always, you can share your thoughts with me anytime at dan at whatitslike.com. Now back to the show. So would you rather have the person that comes on before you bomb or kill? Like what's better for you selfishly? Uh, I think do well. Um, my friend Will Loden featured for me recently when I headlined in Houston. And I did have a moment during his set where I thought, oh, he's too good. I'll never have him go before me again, <laughs> which is not which is not true. But I, for a moment, I did think like, oh no, he's like doing really well in a way that I it's going to be challenging. But no, I don't want them to do badly. I don't think I. I think one, it puts everybody in a bad mood. I think, especially if they don't handle it well. And also, I'm trying, to, with all candidness, I'm trying to be a person that wishes other people to have success. <laughs> I don't know if I am that person, but at least for the purposes of a recorded interview, I'd like to say that I, I, I want everyone to do well. Uh, you it's know the I mean? aspirational, like, Chris. Yeah, no. I mean, this is a challenge for me in general. Is And actually, let, when we talk about, like, how do you write jokes, here's a concept that I have is, is in a very nascent stage that I don't know how to talk about it on stage in a way that's funny. But this is a thing that's, like, in one of my notebooks, which is I want to 
like just ask the audience, like, how do you guys feel happy for others' success? Because I don't know how to do it. And I, this is a thing that I want to figure out how to talk about it in a way that's fun. And I don't have that right now, right? But it's a thing that does feel true to me. And I want to bring onto stage things that I think are true and maybe are like not completely expressed or articulated. Or maybe if I articulate them, somebody will go like, oh, I feel that too. But I feel like that's part of what's so fun about comedy is, I mean, you could get on the internet and find a, a hundred funny, well-constructed jokes, but I feel like the best comedy is about kind of unearthing something that you feel but never really had expressed or called to the surface before, you know, like your insight that, you know, maybe all of us are secretly kind of gritting our teeth at the success of the people around us. Yeah, I feel like I'm trying to put a pin on ever more specific observations about myself in the world. And I'll just give you another example. A recent thing I noticed is that, and again, this is a thing that I don't, that would be in my notebook for me to work on. I've said this a couple times on stage and it doesn't have a really fleshed out form yet. But I have noticed recently that when I sit down for a play or musical or movie or any fun experience at something that I have been looking forward to and turns out to be good, there is still a part of me as soon as I sit down that I want it to be over and I want to go home. <laughs> um, and I don't know what to do with this feeling because it's like, oh, we're at this concert that I bought tickets for nine months ago. I've been waiting the whole year. And as soon as it starts, I'm like, I can't wait to go home. Like I sat down to watch Oppenheimer, a movie I loved, was thought was a great movie. As soon as Oppenheimer started, I was like, I cannot wait for this to finish and for me to be able to tell people that I saw Oppenheimer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really about the the pleasure of sharing the experience rather than the experience itself. Maybe. I mean, you know, you could just like read the reviews online and then bluff and then maybe get the best of both worlds. Yes, I could open up Letterboxd and just bluff my way through it. But there's a little tendril of that thought, which I th and this is one of the non fleshed out parts, which is. Like, I think there is a way for comedians to think about, like, what is our current, like, accepted wisdom in the world? And is that true? Like, is it true that it's better to have experiences over material goods? That is a very common thing that, like, life hacking productivity people tell you these days, which is you should go and collect memories and experiences. And so this thought that I have is, what if we are approaching the acquisition of experiences and memories the same way that we were buying stuff on Amazon. And so mm. now there's a part of me that's like, oh, I just want to be the person that saw Oppenheimer. I don't want to actually do it. I just want to have that experience under my belt. And so I'm like commodifying. I just want <laughs> to be seen as the kind of person who sees and cherishes Oppenheimer. Yeah. It's like identity credentials. It's almost like I want to have credibility for having the opinion. <laughs> you know, mm, I want to be like, mm -hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, I saw it. And this is what I think. And now you have to listen to what I think. But uh, that's a thing that like I feel might be true. And so one thing that happens is then you go and say these things in front of people. And sometimes you do hit a thing of like, oh, yeah, OK, that resonated. Because even now, when those two ideas are like not super funny, I could still say them on stage and like see people nodding. Basically acknowledging that, yes, they're on board for that part of it. Um, there's a thing I could talk about that's like very classical stand-up joke structure, which is that 
the beginning of the joke, typically, whether you call it the setup or the premise of the joke, is the part where you don't necessarily need to get a laugh from somebody, but you kind of need them to uh, be on board with you and not like shaking their head right at the beginning, you know? So if somebody's talking about raising kids and they're just saying like, uh, <laughs> such a very vanilla premise, but like, you know, raising kids is difficult because you never get enough sleep. If you say that and immediately the audience is like, that's not true, then it's going to be very hard to like tell the rest of your joke. And so sometimes I'm feeling out whether even these premises make sense. Like, does it make sense to other people that like you go to something and you want to immediately leave? Or, you know, does it make sense to people that your friend has success and you have trouble feeling happy for them? And if I feel like that is something that's not just true of me, but of more people, then I'll probably try to figure out how to like talk about it in a more, you know, in a way that actually makes you laugh instead of sad. That is so interesting. It, it's almost like there's a therapeutic aspect to all of this. You're kind of talking aloud on stage. I guess it's more group therapy maybe than individual, but you're, you're trying to see, are you struggling with the same things I'm struggling with? Yeah, I think that from my perspective, it's more for the audience than for me. I talk about these things because I'm interested in them. And I am willing as like a professional to talk about anything and be vulnerable with the audience in a way that I think they would probably like not be comfortable with. I don't know if I'm truly vulnerable to the audience when I talk about things like this, but I'm willing to sort of like be the sacrificial goat to talk about this thing so that you can connect with it. And you can connect with it sitting in a chair in the dark, not showing your face while I'm on stage with a bright light on me and a microphone. I'll be the the person in the front with the flashlight <laughs> and uh, hopefully we'll find something interesting. Hmm. What's the material that you're proudest of, like that you felt like you were really speaking truth that mattered? Um, I do talk a lot about being gay and being Chinese American. And I feel like I don't think I'm going to stop talking about those things because I'm sort of continuously surprised by relating ideas that I think are like not even that groundbreaking or new, but they are true to me. And surprised by how many audience members are still kind of like, oh, I've never thought of it that way. Like, I have a joke about racism in the dating world, in gay culture. There's still a fair amount of like racism if you're not white. And a thing that I've heard a lot in my life is that um, I'm not attracted to Asian guys. And so I just have a joke basically about how this is a a thing that uh, people do where they see one Asian person, they're not attracted to them. And then they assume that they're not attracted to all Asian people. And I just sort of explain very simply that like, if you're not attracted to me, that's your opinion. Like that's totally fine. I mean, I can't force everyone to be attracted to me, but if you see me and then you, someone else, another Asian person approaches you and you're like, well, I wasn't attracted to Chris, so I'm not going to be attracted to this other one, that that's racism because you're saying that we all look the same. Right. I, that seems like a very basic idea. The number of people in audiences, when I ex explicate this out like this, that go like, oh, <laughs> or they like nod as if they've never heard it before. Um, I feel like I'm going to keep telling these jokes until I hit an audience where they're just like, yeah, yeah, we know. And I haven't yet. <laughs> That's really interesting. So, Chris, we always end our episodes with a quick lightning round of questions. Here goes. 
What's a word or phrase that only someone from your profession would be likely to know? And what does it mean? I have a word for you that has two meanings. It's the word bump. So when you're scheduled to be on a show and a more famous comedian shows up and they want to do time and they're not planned, but because they're famous, they get to go onto the show. Sometimes you get taken off of the show and that's the, that means that they bumped you off the show. But also in comedy writing, and I, I love this term, it's a very useful term. If you write a sketch and we read it out loud or you uh, tell me a joke you're going to do and there's something in it that is not necessarily something I don't think is funny, but there's a part of it that I think like the premise of it doesn't make sense or logically I have an issue with, I'll say that like what bumps me about that part. So like in your premise, I bump on the idea that um, this X, Y, or Z. And it's just a way of saying like that little moment took me out of it. And I think we could write something better for that moment. Okay, next question. What phrase or sentence strikes fear in the heart of a comedian? Uh, the phrase I really don't like is, the audience is a little light tonight. <laughs> Does that mean there aren't many people? Yes. This is like my main fear. I actually have very little fear these days about being on stage. I have mostly fear about... If I'm producing a show, getting people to show up to see it. If I'm in a show, hoping that people come see the show because I'm in it. And if I'm headlining a show, drawing an audience at that city's comedy club so that the club sees me as a viable person that can attract human beings to come to their club and buy food and buy drinks and all that stuff. And so this is my main fear these days leading up to any show is how are the ticket sales going? Hmm. Because, I mean, I imagine there's a certain density of audience where if it dips below a certain crucial threshold, like it doesn't matter how fun you are. Yeah. And it's a percentage of the room. So like if you ha are in a room that only has 50 seats and you sell 45 tickets, that's going to be a great show. It's going to have energy. It's going to feel sold out. It's going to be wonderful. If I'm in a venue that seats 500 and I sell 150 tickets which is obviously better than selling 45 tickets uh, in terms of, you know, I got this many people to come see the show. That show's going to feel bad. 150 people in a 500-seat theater. It's going to be really hard to get the energy needed. Okay, I got one more question for you here. What has been different about the profession than you anticipated when you started decades ago? I'm actually shocked pleasantly by how congenial stand-ups are. And I guess I shouldn't be shocked by this now because I've had enough experience with it. But I think from the outside and even at some of the early years of doing it, there's this perception that it's an extremely cutthroat business. And it has not felt that way, to be honest. I have met lots of really pleasant, affable, hardworking professional people. And maybe it's because we're all boring and we're not doing drugs and uh, getting drunk and all that stuff. Maybe I'm hanging out with uh, too many of the good people, <laughs> but I have been helped by so many other comedians and I have tried to help other ones with like setting them up with gigs and stuff like that. And it doesn't seem to be like the exception to the rule. I feel like there's a strong ethos in the stand-up world. You know, it almost feels like it's a little bit like us against all of you. <laughs> and so we're sort of like in our own little military trench against this vague 
shadowy audience and that uh, we need all the help we can get against the indifference of the populace. (laughs) Chris Grace is a stand-up comedian and actor. He's touring his solo show, Chris Grace, as Scarlett Johansson around the country this year, and he'll be ringing a new show called Sardines, a comedy about death, to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in August. You can find out more at his website, chrisgrace.com. Chris is the best. And by the way, not only is Chris a super thoughtful guy, he's also an old friend of mine. We go back to the sixth grade. Turns out we shared a love of procrastinating on class projects and playing video games instead, and the rest was history. My favorite part of the interview was him talking about the craft of stand-up. And what's so striking about the work is just the naked intensity of the feedback cycle involved. Like, there are lots of professions in the world that depend on customer feedback. There are entrepreneurs all over the place right now with ideas that they're formulating, and teams are creating versions of those ideas, which are then rolled out to customers for testing, and they take surveys or conduct focus groups, and they boil down the results, distill them, and process them, and then another cycle can begin. With stand-up, though, it's just Chris standing alone, in front of an audience of people gawking at him. And he lobs out some idea that he thought might be funny, and he knows instantly whether it worked or not. No filter, no survey results. The feedback is pumped directly into his nervous system as he stands exposed on stage. And that's the terror of it. But also the fun of it, and what makes it addictive. And folks, that's what it's like to be a stand-up comedian. This episode was produced by Matt Purdy. Thanks for listening.